Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We are in the time of year when everyone is thinking about change. Uh, Even if you don't make an official New Year's resolution, there's still something about the new year that makes you at least consider the idea of doing something different. You've at least had the thought, maybe this year I want to do this. Maybe it's something to do with your health. You know, getting healthier is statistically the most popular New Year's resolution every year. It is a great time to own a fitness gym or a protein shake company, okay? Another big change people want to make is with their money, paying off debt, saving up for something big, maybe pursuing a new job, going back to school. And if you're a believer, it's likely that you want to make some sort of change in your spiritual life. Maybe this year you want to read through the entire Bible. Or be more consistent in church or start devotionals with your family. All of those are great things that could really improve a person's life. But recognizing a need for change and deciding to change, that's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out how to make the actual change. Uh, That's the reason so many of the resolutions and commitments we make don't last. Because we know what we want to change, but we just don't know how to do it or have the motivation to see it through. So we fail and we try again and we fail and we try again and we fail and then we just give up and we accept things the way they are. This morning, I want to share with you how to change, how to change in a way that actually transforms your life. And I'm not going to talk about changing your health or your finances, or even your spiritual habits, though those are important things. Brother, I want to share with you about the biggest kind of change anyone could ever make, and that's changing your heart. You see, your heart is the center of who you are. It's the you inside of you. It's where you think, feel, desire, and process all of life. The heart is the key because if you can change your heart, everything else will change too. Changing your heart will lead to a change in the way you treat your body, the way you spend money, the way you relate to God, the way you relate to others, everything. If you want to change, you've got to start with the heart. So how do we change the heart, the core of who we are? Well, that's where our passage of Scripture is going to come in today. We are walking through the Gospel of Luke. As you can see, Luke is a man who lived in the first century A.D. and took the time to research and study the life of Christ. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote a true account of who Jesus was and what he did so that we could know him for ourselves. But before Luke introduced Jesus in his book about Jesus, he first introduced us to someone else. Someone related to Jesus and who was born just before him named John. See, John too had a miraculous birth and he too had a special calling on his life. His role was to prepare the way for Jesus. And John did that by calling on people to change. They were going to accept the message and ministry of Jesus they first needed to change And that's where Luke takes us right after the birth of John and Jesus and right after the birth or the childhood story we saw last week. So let's start in Luke chapter 3. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, 
and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, now let's ask this first. Why did Luke feel the need to include all those names and all that stuff and, and make me have to pronounce those out loud? Uh, like, did we really need to know all that historical stuff? Well, it's important to see that what Luke is doing here is following this pattern set by the Old Testament authors. Whenever a prophet was introduced in the Old Testament, often the author included the authorities who ruled during his ministry. So by including all this, Luke is telling us that John is a prophet on the same level as those we read about in the Old Testament. But why did the Old Testament authors feel the need to include the historical stuff? Because the authors and ultimately God wanted us to see that these prophets were real people living in a real historical moment. They wanted us to see the place and time they lived in world history. And that's exactly what Luke is doing here. Remember Luke's introduction to his letter? Flip over three or four pages in your Bible. Back to Luke chapter 1, the very first four verses of this gospel. Luke explained why he was writing. He said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, unlike Matthew and John, scholars don't believe Luke was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. So he didn't just sit down one day and start writing everything out that he saw and heard. No, Luke says he sought to compile an orderly account that meant he spent time researching and interviewing the people who did see Jesus as eyewitnesses. And he put all of it together in a particular way so that the truth about Jesus could be clearly known. And here's the key. He said he did this so that we could have certainty. That's why Luke included all this historical information. He wants us to see that he has done his homework and we know from other historical sources that these men listed were real men who really served in these leadership capacities. So by listing all these names out, he's bolstering his account. But he's also showing us that John and Jesus stepped onto the historical scene in a particular time and place. And it was one that was very contentious. Obviously, we know John and Jesus spoke to and ministered to the Jewish people in Israel. But the Jewish people at this time were under Roman rule. Well, sort of. See, Israel was Roman territory under the authority of Caesar. But Caesar put up Herod the Great, who claimed to be a Jew, though he really wasn't, to rule the Jewish people. And though he wasn't Roman either, he was friendly with the Romans and served the empire well by keeping the peace. He was also a maniac who had his entire family killed to protect his throne. Interesting guy. And as we see in Matthew, Herod the Great died not long after Jesus was born. And he broke up the land and gave each part to his sons, who he also called Herod. A little confusing, but Herod was more of a title than a name. You also had Pilate, who was a Roman governor on the scene. His job was to collect taxes and to be the face of Roman rule. 
And then you had the high priest, Annas, who was sort of like the Jewish pope, except his dad, Caiaphas, the former high priest, refused to just step away. So he continued to help his son behind the scenes as sort of a second high priest. See what I mean? Clear as mud. It's a little complicated. You have all these different warring factions of leaders, none of whom like each other, but somehow found a way to coexist in these few decades. That was the scene John stepped into. So what do we know about this John, besides that we typically think of his last name being Baptist, middle name being the? <laughs> we don't know much about his upbringing, except that he was raised by a priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And that he was given a message in the wilderness, a message about change. While it's true the Jewish people were desperate for change, they wanted political change. They wanted a change in their circumstances. But John was sent to tell them, that's not the kind of change you need. Yes, there's all this tension in our region of the world, but there's an even greater spiritual tension taking place inside you. So let's look at John's message, Luke chapter 3. Verses 3 through 6. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways in all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke tells us that John was a street preacher of sorts. He was out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing, and many people were coming out to see him. John's baptism was a bit different from how we understand baptism, whereas our baptism is a symbolic act after you meet Jesus. John's baptism was a symbolic act to prepare you to meet Jesus. It was an act of preparation. That's why Luke calls it a baptism of repentance. And that word is the key word for this whole passage, the word repentance. I know it's a kind of a churchy word. We might think of it as a harsh or judgmental word, but to repent simply means to change. It's similar to the word to turn. It's turning around, away from your sin, 180 degrees, and toward God. I like this definition of repentance. Uh, repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of action. That's what John's baptism symbolized. It was a demonstration that you were preparing yourself for the coming of God. We also know that's the case because of Luke's quote, verses 4 through 6. It's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Luke is telling us that this is all connected. John's not coming out to do something new. Rather, he's fulfilling what was told long ago through Isaiah. So what was Isaiah's prophecy? It's that there would be a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. That's John. And what would he be crying? He'd be saying, prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming, and you better get ready. That was John's ministry and message. And Isaiah's prophecy contains some fascinating imagery about how to prepare the way for God. In the ancient world, when a king or dignitary would travel, some of the servants would go before him to prepare his path. Literally, they would fill in any holes and tear down trees and obstacles in the way so that his travel would be uninterrupted. It would be smooth. 
That's the imagery Isaiah used. He's saying the kind of preparation that John is fulfilling. It was a spiritual preparation. The mountains and the hills being made low was a picture of the prideful being humbled. The crooked being made straight was a picture of sinners changing their ways. This was all about hearts being prepared, being made ready for God's coming. And here's why. Verse 6, he says, because all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God is coming. And what is he coming to do? He's coming to save us. And all people are going to see it. So get ready. Prepare. Repent. Change your heart. That was John's ministry. It's what he taught. It's what his baptism symbolized. And let me tell you, John was not playing around. (laughs) He took his job very seriously, and he was a firecracker, a rebel rouser, a nuisance. Because John got straight to the point. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 7 through 9. He, John, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And for some reason, when I begin one of my sermons by calling the congregation a bunch of snakes, I, I get in trouble. What's up with that? John, he got away with it because he, he, he wasn't playing around. I mean, this language he uses is, is loaded. Think all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where you have the seed of the serpent, the devil. The snakes are pictured as deceptive and demonic, opposed to God. I've tried telling you guys that snakes are evil. I'm telling you. But man, why does John call these people, the people who were literally coming to see him, coming to be baptized, and why does he call them snakes? Well, this gets to the heart of the problem, the reason that people can't change. The heart of the problem is our wicked hearts. And look, guys, this will not win you friends or earn you awards. But what the Bible teaches about our natural state apart from God is wicked, evil, and sinful. We are not just kind of bad or mostly bad or have a few struggles every once in a while. We're not a mixed bag of good and evil. We don't have the devil and an angel on each shoulder. No, on our own, we are totally depraved. Jeremiah said it like this, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, Paul said this, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The human state, apart from God, is sinful. We are sinners who have all sinned against God, and sin is our greatest problem. Sin is the greatest problem in the world today. It's not a lack of education or a lack of good government or lack of resources, or lack of knowledge, or lack of happiness. It's a lack of obedience to God's commands. It's a rebellion against our creator and a conscious choice to go against his design. So the truth is, apart from God's grace, you and me are a brood of vipers. We are, and I would be lying to tell you anything different. 
Guys, we won't appreciate the cure until we know the disease. And that's why John jumps straight to it. We need to change. But we can't change because of our deceptive and sinful hearts. So what do we do? John, he says simply, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Change your heart so that you can change your actions. And we'll come back to that. But John's just getting warmed up. He goes right after the Jewish people's false sense of security, their, their pride in their ethnic heritage. The Jewish people believed that because they were Abraham's children, meaning ethnically Jewish, they were good with God, right? They'd be protected from God's judgment. And what does John say to that? He says, guys, your being in the right family tree, having the right DNA in your body is not enough. Because if God wants children of Abraham, look at those rocks over there. He can make them right there. You ever heard the expression to cut someone off at the knees? That's what John does here. He goes right to the heart of Israel's problem and rips it out. He says, it's not about who you know or who you're related to or what group you come from. It is about making a personal decision for yourself. And you better act fast because he says judgment is coming. He uses the image of an axe being laid to the root of a tree. He says, the axe is here, folks. It is ready to go. And he likens the judgment to being cut down and thrown into a fire. John is fierce. I think if he were around today, he would be canceled. He would be called an extreme fire and brimstone preacher. Because our, our culture today does not jive very well with the idea of judgment. We value acceptance and affirmation. But here's the truth. How we feel about judgment does not matter nearly as much as whether or not it's coming. It's like if a doctor were to tell you, uh, sir, I've got some bad news. I need to tell you that we found a cancerous mass on your pancreas. And you were to respond, doctor, that is really offensive to me. I mean, what right do you have to judge my pancreas? You are violating my right to personal happiness and fulfillment. How dare you? Look, our feelings about the Bible's teaching on judgment does not change whether it's true or not. Is God going to judge the world? Is he just and fair? Is he going to punish sin and evil? If he is, I want to know about it. If a tornado's coming down my street, I want the siren to work. So I know this is not warm and fuzzy, but it's true. We have a sin problem, and we will face God's judgment for our sin unless we change, unless we repent and turn away. That is John's message, and it's still true today. So here's the first of two calls from John that I want you to consider today for yourself. Here's the first. How do we change? Number one, turn from pride to sorrow. C.S. Lewis has a chapter in his book, Mere Christianity, entitled, The Great Sin. Listen to what he says. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. 
And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. If you've never read this book and this chapter, I would encourage you to go do it because Lewis goes on to say the sin he's talking about, he calls vice, is pride. Pride is the sin that leads to all other sins. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. Pride is the reason we struggle to change because we don't think we really need to. The Jewish people didn't think they needed to change because they had religious pride. They were children of Abraham. And we may not be related ethnically to Abraham, but I wonder if we too struggle with spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is putting our trust or finding our security in our own selves or what we've done. Things like, I come from a Christian family. I go to church. I'm a member. I serve. I give. I read my Bible. I pray. I've helped a lot of people. I've been on mission trips. I'm a good neighbor. I work hard. I'm a good person. None of those are bad things. In fact, we'll see that the good works are a fruit of repentance. But when any of those things becomes the source of our trust and security, if we ever begin to think that something we've done is what makes us right with God, that's when it becomes pride. That's when it becomes deadly. And yet all of us struggle with pride. So how do we turn from it? Well, it starts with sorrow. James said it like this in James chapter 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James must have been real fun at parties. (laughs) He says, changing your heart starts with godly sorrow. You need to cry. You need to honestly assess yourself your sinfulness, and humble yourselves before the Lord. Be broken before him, recognizing that nothing we can do is enough, but God is enough, and we desperately need him. Repentance starts with an honest confession before God and sorrow over our sin. And that's the change of heart that leads to a change of action. And it's the action we see in the second part of John's message. Look at these last verses. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. We see here that repentance is not just something on the inside. It's not just this internal spiritual feeling, but it works its way outward into our lives and choices. And John says here that manifests specifically in the way we treat others. 
That's what we see with three groups of people who each come to John. They say, John, what do we do? See, that's how a truly repentant person responds. It's not, look what I've done, spoken in justification. No, it's, what do I need to do, Lord, in brokenness? Look at each of these examples. The first group is the crowd, just in general. They say, John, what do we need to do? And it's fascinating. John, he doesn't say, hey, go to the temple and pray. He doesn't say, go read the scriptures. He doesn't call them to any sort of religious ritual or act at all. He simply calls on them to meet someone's need. It's that simple. He says, if you're repentant toward God, then give your extra shirt to someone who doesn't have one. Give your food to the one who's hungry. Second group comes up. They're tax collectors. They say, what do we need to do, John? And again, John's message is so simple. He says, just don't collect more than you're supposed to. That only makes sense uh, when we understand that there's a context in the first century to this. The, the tax collectors were thought of by Jews as thieves. That's because collecting taxes for Rome was an abusive system, whereas the collectors would upcharge and pad their pockets. This led to all sorts of bribery and fraud. So tax collectors were perhaps the most hated group of people in Judaism. But it's interesting. John doesn't tell them to leave their professions. He doesn't condemn their work. He just simply tells them to be fair to other people. That would be the proof that they were truly repentant. Third group is soldiers. This is another group that could be very unpopular in this time due to political reasons. Some military officials had a reputation for abusing their authority particularly for financial gain. They didn't make a lot of money in their work, so it was tempting for them to extort others. But again, John doesn't tell them to change jobs. He doesn't criticize them for serving in law enforcement. He simply says, don't mistreat people. Be content with what you have. Again, it's this, it's this focus on others. So when we put John's response to these three groups together, we see the second call that we need to consider today. How do we change? Number two, turn from self to others. Isn't it interesting that of all the things John could have told people to do, he challenged them to consider the way they dealt with others. John tells them to live out their repentance by caring about other people more than themselves. According to Luke 3, that's proof of a changed heart. It's not just feeling bad or wanting to change or crying or talking about it. A changed heart is manifested in a care for others. A right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with his people. That means undoing wrongs, confessing sin, seeking forgiveness. That means being generous to people in need sacrificing what you have for the sake of another. That means treating people as image bearers, even those you may despise. So what would this look like in your own life? Are there people who you're taking advantage of? Maybe in your family, your workplace? Is there a group of people in society that you are ignoring do you think more about your own needs than someone else's? Is there someone who you need to make things right with? Think about this with me. Could the roadblock in your spiritual life, the thing holding you back from growing in your faith, could it be a broken relationship that you haven't dealt with? 
Could it be bitterness that you refuse to let go of? Could it be someone that you owe an apology? Could it be someone that you need to call and forgive for something that happened long ago? The Bible is clear on this. Your relationships with others can hinder or can help your relationship with God. And for some of you, the change you need starts with dealing with those you've hurt or those who have hurt you. The fruit of repentance is a turn from self to others. To close this morning, I want to give you just a little sneak preview of next week. Because this is not all that John says. There's more to come. We'll see in the next passage that John tells the people the ultimate reason they need to repent and change. It's not just to help people in need, but it's because someone greater is coming and he's talking about Jesus. Their long-awaited Savior was about to finally step on the scene and if they weren't ready, they would miss him. And here we are on the other side of Jesus' coming 2,000 years later. And just as some of them weren't prepared for his coming and missed him, some of us are still missing him today. So let me ask you, have you been changed? Notice I didn't say, have you changed? No, have you been changed? That's because change doesn't come from within Change comes from without. True change comes from a changed heart. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. That's where it all starts. It's not about getting your act together or becoming a better person or even becoming more religious or spiritual. Jesus says to come to him, all we got to do is turn away from our sin. That's repentance. And turn to Jesus in faith. The word I like to use to describe that process is the word surrender. It's giving up, recognizing that you are powerless to change on your own and giving your life to Jesus. Life change, heart change, real change starts with Jesus, with surrendering to him. And if that's not a decision you've ever made before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now, today. Would you bow your head with me?